Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 652 with Chef Steve Redzikowski. Just a great attitude. Um, a person that has a great attitude can be taught anything. I want, I want a sponge with a great attitude. I don't care where you've worked, what you know, what you don't know. If you have a good attitude, we can do anything with you. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. It doesn't get easier than Cake. Cake is the point of sale built for restaurants that's easy to set up and use. With cloud-based access from any device, 24-7 customer support, and a lifetime access to Cake University, how could you not love Cake? To learn more about Cake point of sale, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you're a restaurant unstoppable listener, you will save $750 off activation. Again, and that's trycake.com slash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Steph, Steve Redzinkowski. Are you feeling unstoppable today? I am unstoppable. Yes, that is what we like to hear. And I have had the opportunity to learn a little bit about you through past guests on the show. And I'm really excited for today's conversation. I know you're going to crush it. No pressure. but no pressure. <laughs> So Chef Steve Redzikowski got... Uh, the industry bug slinging pies in New York's Long Island. After graduating from culinary school, Red Zakowski got to work in some of New York City's best restaurants before making the move west for an opportunity at Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado. He spent the next four years further, re- sorry, further refining his skills at Frasca Food and Wine in Boulder, Colorado, as well as Cyrus restaurant in Napa Valley, California, before returning back to Little Nell in 2010, but this time as the executive sous chef. In 2000, uh, sorry, that was in 2008. In 2010, Redzinkowski joined forces with Brian Dayton to open Oak in Boulder, Colorado. Oak was followed in 2015 with Acorn, located in Denver, Colorado. And um, did I say that uh, Oak was in Denver, Colorado? Because that's in Boulder. Uh, Oak is in Boulder. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oak is in Boulder. Acorn is in Denver. And uh, not long after, uh, Brider opened uh, 
what was like a year after also in Denver, Colorado? Uh, it's been open now for about three and a half years. Awesome. So obviously we're just scraping the surface. I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? I mean, it's probably been used quite a bit, but, um, I always have believed in Thomas Keller's, you know, treat it like it's yours and someday it will be. Yes. I love that. That comes up all the time on the show. Talk to us real quick before we dive into your story, how that rings true to your story. So we actually have that hanging in our basement, uh, that every employee has to see going downstairs and that's where the employee room is. Um, because I think it's so important because for me, it was something that if, if you basically what, what the quote says, if you treat it like it's yours, no matter what, no matter what you give 110%, anything you're doing, um, it shouldn't matter if it's yours or somebody else's or what you're doing. There's only one way to do something and it's do it the right way. Do yeah. something correct the right way. And ultimately what we are as uh, owners is it's our responsibility to recreate ourselves and others and to make other owners. So if you set that culture from day one to treat it like you own it, what you're doing is you're creating other owners. And Absolutely. when you have an arsenal of other owners on your team, look at, I mean, look what you can do with that. Like how much opportunity you can create for your, yourself and others for that by, by empowering people to, to treat it like they own it. They will eventually own it. They'll be a partner someday. Absolutely. Or they'll go and they'll, they'll own their own spot. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, you can have as many accolades as you want and how many James Beards and stars and all this. But when you maybe sit on your couch when you're 70 years old, you look back and you see the people that you personally kind of affected and mentored to get to where they are. And that to me beats any star, any award, any recognition anywhere. I love it, man. Great stuff. Great way to get this thing started. So let's go back to where it makes sense. Where does the story start for you? So story starts for me in uh, Long Island, New York. Um, I was around, I'd say 15 years old. Um, my older brother, who I happen to have two brothers who are both in the industry. Um, I don't know how that happened. But, uh, <laughs> my older brother, he worked at this pizzeria. And he, um, you know, worked there while he was in school as well. He left to go to the military and he was like, Hey, you know, you need to, you need to get a job. You need to. So he basically told me I'm working. So I basically, uh, started working at, at 15 at this pizzeria doing dishes. Um, and I just was watching the owners make pizza and they did wings and things like that. And, you know, I, I was just always kind of fascinated with wanting to do more and, you know, something that, that sticks with me. And I tell my cooks this all the time. And I tell everybody around me all the time, even myself, if you want to do something, you know, do it do it right. My, my dad taught me that from day one. He's like, don't half-ass anything. Um, just put yourself in there and do it right. Don't don't waste the time. If you're going to do something, why not do it correct? What does doing it right look like? I know that's a really broad question because it it's probably specific to whatever it is you're doing, but more generically, what does doing it right look like? To me, doing it right looks like um, if, if someone was looking at me and then I look at myself at the end of the day and I basically critique myself and I say, what did I do with this, it could be a dish, a situation at work. It could be anything in life. Um, did I handle it correctly? And I think doing it right means looking at the situation that occurred or something that you did and just critiquing yourself, critiquing everything almost under a microscope. So this way you could say, hey, I feel like I handled this right or I feel like I, I did this situation correctly. If not, then you're going to change it and that's how you're going to grow and that's how you're going to, next time a situation comes up or you're, you're making a, a new dish, you're creating something, you're thinking a new way and, and it's just constantly monitoring yourself, constantly critiquing yeah. yourself. Yeah, and they say like you, you got to track yourself and even in business, right, you're going to track your business, the numbers, but you, personally you have to track yourself too, your personal progress so 
you you know if you showed up today better than you did yesterday. And were, were you keeping a journal or was it just mental? Like, how did you know that you were tra- like progressing? So both. I actually did keep when I was younger, um, and I stopped doing that a few years ago. But when I was younger. Um, I definitely kept the journal of the day and because, I, you know, working in some of the kitchens we can get into a little bit, they were hard and I wrote down my day and I was like, how do I not have chef try to kill me again today? <laughs> yeah. Like, what did I do? So obviously you're, you're writing recipes down, I'm assuming in these journals, right? And, and technique, but what else are you writing down? Like what, Almost like that? a diary yeah. of the day. Um, how, how I came into my day, what time I arrived, I would put in here. Um, I would write down, you know, what I started on, how long it took me to do a project approximately. Uh, um, see now, now you can see if you're improving with your efficiency too, right? Absolutely. Which is huge because time is money. Definitely. I love it. So anything else you want, you want to share with us regarding the journal and, and tracking your progress? I mean, I don't want to cut you short cause that's a, that's a nugget right there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's a valuable piece that all younger cooks should do because you're not always going to have time from your manager or your chef to sit down with you every day, to sit down with you even once a week. You know, um, we try to spend time with our, our cooks and our employees, but it's a good way to see what you're doing and it manages yourself. Yeah. And if you want to be an owner, a manager someday, a chef running your own place, you should be able to manage yourself and manage your own day and manage your expectations. And I think by looking back and just saying, Hey, this is where I was three months ago, you know, and, and some people, you know, including myself, we, we need to pat ourselves on the back sometimes and we can read through it and be like, wow, I remember how hard it was to tornay a whole five gallon bucket of vegetables. Now it's, I don't even think about Muscle it. Muscle memory. Yeah. And now, you know, now you go to work and you're just like, you don't think about it anymore, but you read back and you're like, that used to be hard for me. That used to be really difficult. So just being able to see your own progress must give you, you know, inspiration just, you know, to know that you're showing up better. I mean, we need to know we're making progress to be happy. We need to person, we need to grow. That's one of those, those basic needs that humans need to know that they're learning and growing. It's right there under self-actualization. It's super important. And the other thing I want to pull from this too, is uh, you put an emphasis on making sure that you're keeping a note. So during these reviews, you, you have something to talk about. I mean, not every restaurant will do a quarterly or a yearly review. Um, so take advantage of that, but go into that review with intention. When you have that list of things you've been working on, you have talking points, like you can make use of that time. Not everybody gets that opportunity in operations. So Absolutely. very powerful stuff there. So going back, staying chronological, um, you must have, there must've been something about this restaurant, this first restaurant that you worked in, or maybe there was one after before going to culinary school that really influenced you. When did you know this was going to be your career? When did you know you were in for good? So, you know, in high school, just probably like uh, many, many people, not really into it, you know, not yeah. really into, I, I love social studies. That was oh, awesome learning history, too, but science and math, I, I was not, I just wasn't into it. Yeah. I didn't like going to school, um, <laughs> which everybody doesn't <laughs> like, but uh, I, I got really excited to get out of school. And it, the second I got out, to drive to work and, you know, to, to be around that energy. I love that energy. Um, just in this pizzeria, it was only four people. It was just four of us, but it was the energy of when it's time to run, you run. And whether it be dishes, whether you, I was working wing station pizzas, it, it, you get in there and, and auto, automatically you just tighten up a little bit and mm-hmm. you know, Hey, it's time to run. It's not time to mess around here. It's time to get the job done. And I, I love that energy. So it was the high pace energy, uh, the high pace work uh, atmosphere that really sucked you in, you'd say. Absolutely. So when did you make the decision that you were going to go to culinary school? So I worked at this pizzeria for about a year and a half, almost two years. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. And then I started making the pizzas. And 
that was great. Like really like working with food every day. Mm -hmm. I I just loved it, you know? And, um, then I said, you know what, let me try this in an actual restaurant restaurant because this place just did, you know, pizzas. Yeah. And I said, I want to see if this is something that I could do. So then I, um, I worked at another restaurant in New York and, um, it was a small mom and pop's place. And I, I really liked it a lot. The chef there, his name was Dave, and uh, he was the only guy in the kitchen. That's it. And I was the dishwasher. And he said I would help him with prep. And then when I got my dishes, you know, in line, then I can go help him with prep. So I would just bust those dishes out as fast as I could nice. so that I could get on to prep because I wanted to touch food. I wanted to work with it. And I just really liked that. I like working with the food. And then around that time, that's when my dad kind of put in my head that, hey, if you want to be great at something, you need to surround yourself with great people. Yes, that is a great lesson. Um, he he just ingrained it in me. Like He's like, don't waste your time you know, messing around. Like Really get in there and surround yourself with the greatest people you can, and you yourself will become them, or you could become greater. And I thought, you know, that's impossible. But I said, I- I'm going to do it. I mean, he'd, he'd always, you know, he'd steer me the right way. Yeah. So, um from there, I, I, you know, I was just kind of dabbling into culinary school at the time, and I was going there part time, and I went down to New York City on the weekends, and I would check out these restaurants that I could not afford to eat in, but I would peek in the windows and I would look in and see what they were doing. And at the time, the restaurant Le Cirque 2000 was there, um, and at that time, it was I think it was around it was ninety nine, maybe two thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, it was regarded as the best restaurant in New York City wow. at the time. And I went in there and I was like, you know, I, I want... How old are you at this point? Mm, probably 19 or 20. Okay, so like four years after getting into the industry about... Because I remember yeah. the, the staff would go out and I couldn't go out yeah. with them. I couldn't drink, <laughs> so I, could, I couldn't go out. With okay, them. cool. I just want to get a little reference in there. Keep going. So I was, I was so green and I, I went in there and, you know, I, I spoke to the chef. His name was Jens Dolman, um, who happens to be a, a real big influence in my life. Um, and he was just like, no, he's like, you, you have no experience, like you... you what you, you've been cooking now for three years, but at a pizza place and at this mom and pasta, I can't even pronounce, you know, I don't even know what this place, I can't even find it if yeah. I look it up. And I was like, well, I, I really want to work here. I really want to work here. And he, um, basically just said no. So then I showed up again the next week yes. and I mean, I'm driving, you know, in there. And at this time now we had moved, um, upstate New York and I was working with a, a kind of in the kitchen upstate. So I would drive maybe three, three and a half hours, parked my car. It was, like thirty dollars for like an hour in Manhattan to park the car, just to be told, no, I can't, I can't work here. And I was like, dang it! And I walked back to the car, and I was like, well, there goes another thirty dollars. <laughs> how many times did you do it total? Probably three times. What did he say on the third time? On um, the third time, he said, well, he's like, you can come in and you can help out a little bit. You can help out. So Le Cirque was the most, to this day, most magical kitchen I've ever seen in my life. Um, the kitchen, it, it was just, you can't, it would take two hours for me to describe this kitchen. It was insane. And I've never seen another kitchen like it since, and this was back in 99. So um, he basically put me, they had these cubicles in the back of the kitchen. One cubicle was just vegetables. So they'd have two people breaking down all vegetables during the day. One cubicle was just fish, two people breaking down all the fish. And one cubicle was meat. Two people breaking down all the meat. And at the time in 99, I don't know if you ever watch um, the, the show Mad Men. Um, no. It's, it's basically a show about back in the 80s, 90s, where these power lunches and just these businessmen would go out. And I mean, we would sell the, the, the dinner menu at Le Cirque was the same dinner menu as it was for lunch. And you'd staff five bartenders on for lunch. You'd staff five for dinner because you would do 350 covers at that dinner price for lunch and people would be drinking martinis and Manhattans and, 
and uh, old fashions. It was it was insane when you look back to how those crazy power lunches were back then. Yeah, man, I love it. Um, and I just I, he put me in on the veg station there, and I just I just peeled veg. And I remember my older brother was like, "When you get in here, he's like, do not." like mess around he's like i want you to peel like if they give you a carrot you peel the carrot like you're like drowning <laughs> so they gave me like potatoes and i just started going bananas <laughs> i mean i peeled the case of potatoes faster than i've ever peeled them it's still to this day because i wanted that job and um you know people notice that they, they really notice it you know you get over to turnips and you just start crushing turnips and you, you, i just put in my mind just do this faster than the two people that are already here and they noticed it, and they just said, you know, you can come back. You can come back and work with us, um, but not paid, you know. Yeah. So I did that for about three months, and while I was going to culinary school, I'd been in my first maybe six months or so of culinary school. I had done an internship. Real quick, i got to summarize a couple things. I want to put yeah. – I want to highlight a few things from your story up to this point. Uh, first, coming from uh, – you know, your dad, uh, treat it like you own it. Right. And, uh, that's exactly what you did in that first location right there. Like, and you continue to have that mentality all throughout these opportunities that you're getting, but that, that advice to go surround yourself with the best. Right. Uh, and, and you're going to get turned away because these, these places are at the top. Like they're, they're getting resumes after resumes. Like it's not easy to get in these places, but if you keep showing up and you show them how bad you want it, they will let you at least stand inside the kitchen. Right. And then when you get to that point, show them how bad you want it. Right. And, and like you said, just trying to beat everyone on either side of you. And eventually they'll see, you'll learn, you'll grow. And you said you weren't getting paid, but there's so many different types of assets in life, not just monetary lessons, networking, you, you, people that you know is so valuable. And if you want to give up, maybe four or five days of your life to get yourself access to those people and their influence and their networks and their knowledge that is invaluable. So don't think you're not getting anything because you're getting so much. Agreed. just wanted to emphasize that. Um, I absolutely agree. Do, do you think there's worth going any deeper there? Do you want to take, uh, pick up where you left off? I mean, that's, that's super crucial because nowadays it's hard to see that and hard to explain that. Yeah. We do have people that work with us that, that they want to come in early and they want to see how fish is butchered, how pasta is made. We do, but we don't have enough of those people. And it's just, yeah, it, to me, I get it. I, I should be a little more sympathetic to how everybody thinks. But to me, I'm like, well, what are you doing before your shift starts at 3 o'clock? What are you doing? What are you doing when your shift ends at 3 and you're going home? Why don't you immerse yourself? And, and we'll talk about that in a little bit when I got to John George. Yeah. I, I lived at that place because there's so much to see besides what your actual job is. There's so much to see what you're actually getting paid for. And and, and the money will come and, and opportunities will come if you put in that effort mm. and you, you have, you have to put in what you want to get out. Yes. That's all there is to it. Awesome stuff, man. Great stuff. So I think when I cut you short, you were getting talking about your culinary experience or your culinary school experience. Is that where your frame of mind was? So I, I had done an, uh, an internship for Disney world through my, nice. through culinary. It was only four months. Uh, that was amazing to see the volume there was insane. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you learned a ton. I, I never saw a volume like yeah. that ever. And that taught me to run, like mm. really run. But then I came back, you know, and that's when I said I wanted to go to Le Cirque and I was in culinary school and, you know, I, I kept going in there and just doing things like peeled vegetables. And, um, after I showed up for about three months straight and I'd never missed a shift of just, you know, I actually didn't really have a schedule, but did you ever like, get paid up to this point or were you still volunteering? No, not point? yet. Just volunteering. That's freaking awesome. Keep um, going. I mean, I, it, it to me, it was, <laughs> I, I would, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was again, the most magical place. I've yeah. Ever I think seen. we drilled home the point of the value in that. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah. crazy. Um, so yeah, I just kept showing up and eventually the chef there at the time, his name was Jens Dolman, a big monster German chef. 
um, when he hears this, he's going to be like, what? Um, he, he somehow in some way just just took a liking to me. So this is the the guy that turned you away the first two times, right? Uh, this, this was, well, he more of, it it was, uh, Pierre who was the chef de cuisine there turned me away. Okay. Um, but once, you know, Yen saw, saw me, I think going, trying to work as hard as I could work as fast as I could. He, um, you know, then he said, Hey, you know, we, we could get an opportunity or a spot for you. Um, and luckily enough, you know, they put me right in there. I was on Entremet. Entremet's basically an assistant to a station. So I was the assistant to, uh, the meat station there. So the gentleman that was working to the, to my side, um, he, he had tons of experience. He was like almost probably early thirties. Um, he'd been cooking for a while and I think I was 19. Um, I just soaked him up like a sponge and whatever Yins did, I followed him and I did it. And you know, uh, my, my goal was really, my goal was not to mess up, not to mess up. And, and in the daily journal I would write when I got home was literally what my day was when it started, things I messed up on, things that I didn't hear anything about. So I'm, you know, no news is good news in a restaurant. A lot yeah. of times, you know? <laughs> um, so, but I would write down everything that I was told that I did wrong that day. And there was, a, there was a lot. It took up more than the positive for sure. Um, and, and I tried to make sure I didn't make that mistake again. That was the only thing, you know, my only goal was, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but just don't make that mistake again. Don't do it. Mm. So, um, I worked at Le Cirque for about two and a half years and through that two and a half years, I was fortunate enough. Yince, for some reason, he pushed me and, and he pushed me hard and he moved me up big time. I mean, there were some incidences there where he, I thought he was going to kill me. I literally <laughs> thought like he literally one time grabbed me and absolutely like manhandled me. You, you um, did say that he was a huge influence on you. Share with us the biggest ways he was an influence on you. He didn't let me make an excuse. He never let me come up with anything like no, you know, that, that kitchen taught me, Hey, just say yes, chef. That's it. Just say yes, chef and, and, and fix it, fix the problem. Don't let it happen again. He would just, he'd be very hard on me, but you can tell it was, it was more of a caring part. Mm. Like he would tell me what I was doing wrong. Never big thing with me is he never let me get away with anything. Never. Mm. Like if he saw that one day I came in and I was just exhausted and you know, I might've been working a little slower. No way. He was like, Steve, move it, move it. Yeah. So he taught you standards is what I'm hearing. He taught you like, this is the way it's done. No ifs, ands, or buts. And you said he also cared and I don't want to assume things, but was when you said he, when you, when you would do something wrong, he would tell you it was wrong, but then would he show you what was right and why it was right? Absolutely. He would definitely, you know, uh, you know, I started doing a little bit of butchering as well. I remember cutting some some duck breast at the time, and he's like, you know, he has a little bit of an accent. He's like, Stephen, he's like, what is it? This is absolute garbage. This is garbage. <laughs> and I'm looking at it, and then I'm looking at it compared to, you know, the other ones, and I'm like, it, yes, it's, it's garbage. <laughs> and he's like, you got it, you know, and he would get really worked up, but he would do it next to me. Um, and, you know, he wouldn't sit there and coddle me by any means, but he would do it. And, and just by him doing it and showing me how to do yes. it and cooking that piece of meat or, you know, whatever it was, then I was like, well, it's possible to do this. Yeah. It's not just a guy telling me to do something. And beyond that, we need a, we need a target. We need an aiming point. We need a picture of perfection. We can't just assume because you know, it's all relative to your experience at that point. So you, when he was beside you going through the motions and showing you the standard, the picture of perfection, now you have an aiming point, right? Absolutely. So important. Um, anything else we can talk about regarding what Chef Yun taught you? You know, he really, that kitchen was extremely intimidating. It was the most intimidating restaurant I've ever kind of, I've ever been in my life, I've ever seen. But he somehow got me to do the job 
um, where I wasn't timid with him. I, I was a little bit more, I wanted to prove myself to him. And he, the way he came in and the way he conducted himself, the way he went through his day, the hours he put in, um, I just, I just, he didn't give me an excuse to, to, you know, to make an excuse. There was yeah. no, no reason because I'm like, the guy's working way more hours than me. The guy's putting in more effort than me. The guy's 10 times more talented than me. The guy handles himself just cool demeanor. That was mm. another thing too. And I'll say that to our cucks now is you guys should be cool cucumbers. Don't let yourself get worked up. Don't let yourself get upset. Inside, keep it in there. Yeah. It's not good to bottle it, but if you're in service, keep it in. Yeah. We this, don't want to see it. <laughs> this comes up a lot in the show, um, but that mentality of no one's going to work harder than you do in your restaurant. So if you have a certain standard or certain expectation, you need to live that standard, that expectation with your with your actions every day. And it sounds like that's kind of what you 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 know you got from that. Like you would you're you're gonna work so hard because you know that he was willing to work harder, right? Absolutely. Awesome stuff. And uh, like I said, it comes up all the time on the show, but every time it comes up, it's worth putting emphasis on because it's so important. Uh, you, we got to jump to John George now. Um, unless, am I cutting you short? There's- so the great thing about Jens too was, uh, so I worked, um, I worked there that Entremet station for about a year, a year and a quarter, and he then said, "I want to move you to Meat Station." And I was 20 years old, and I was working saucier. Okay. I made the sauces. I cooked all the meats in house, which was insane. Every cook- how many 20 year olds were doing that? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, crazy. I don't want to toot the horn, but yeah. not many, not many. Keep going. But the reason I was able to do that was because he spent one-on-one time with me, showed me how to cook meat properly, showed me what to look out for. And every cook in that restaurant hated my guts. Every cook did not. And, and Jens told me, he's like, I don't care about anybody else. I want you to run over everybody else. I want you taking their position. You take their job. You're not here to make friends. You're here to take their job. What, what do you think the resentment was? Do you think because you got a shortcut to this restaurant? I mean, I'm 20 years old and I'm cooking meat. Everybody wants to get to meat station. Yeah. Everybody. And the, the idea is you work cold station, you work entremet, then you move to pasta, then you move to fish, then you move to meat. But for me, I, I, looking back, I think I just did exactly what he said. I never deviated. I always never cut corners. I just said, yes, chef. And I, I did it. So and you got this opportunity, not necessarily because of how good you were at cooking, was which you were good. I mean, you must've had some kind of skill, but also it's how you worked with the chef, how you listened, how you respected his word. And I think that being that workhorse, being that listener, being that yes, chef was probably, do you think that probably contributed to your expedited track? It's definitely work ethic for sure. And it's uh, definitely just, just paying attention. Like when, when the chef spoke, when he spoke, you just sit there. Everything else is clouded out. It's just him only speaking. And you, you make sure you listen to what he's saying because he doesn't have a lot of time. Yeah. And if he's going to spend time with me, I'm going to take advantage of that. And yeah. So he moved me to meat station. I worked meats for another year. Um, and then he literally said to me, he was like, I, I, cannot move you up anymore. He goes, you only know what I've taught you. You only know this restaurant. You know nothing else, which he was right. I yeah. only knew. If, if they ever changed the menu or something, I'd, ha- I'd struggle because I didn't know how to cook anything mm-hmm. besides what was going on there. So he said, you need to move on. Yes. You need to go oh, and challenge yourself. I was hoping you would say that. And the reason why I'm so excited right now is because the, the, the best chefs, the best restaurateurs, the best people in this world know that when somebody has moved beyond a point where you can do, like when you've brought that person as far as they can, I mean, he could have been greedy. He could have like had you rock that station and, and had you as an, a line employee for like 
20 years or whatever, but he knew that what was best for you was to go on someplace else to create opportunity for somebody. And it's that selflessness that we need to try to recreate in our businesses. Right. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, okay. We, it's almost a half hour into this conversation. I'll speed it up. <laughs> but I'm, no, you're dropping gold on us, man. I love it. But I want to make sure we get the full story. So uh, the transition to Jean-Georges, this is why you ended up going to Jean-Georges. So he told me that um, Jean-Georges at the time, after I'd been at Le Cirque for about two and a half years, Jean-Georges at the time was, again, top two, three restaurants in all of Manhattan. And he said, I think you should go here and you should you should work at this place. And he actually called the chef there. He told them I was coming down. And basically just said, hey, I need him for another few weeks, but then he's yours. So I didn't really have a say. I was just kind of like traded, almost like baseball. I, they just traded me up. <laughs> um, and I transitioned then into working at John George. And yeah, I got the job through him just saying, you need to hire this kid. And, so obviously we can't just skim over John George, but give us like one or two nuggets from this experience that you think you, you picked up from beyond what you, you learned at the first look or with uh, uh, Cirrus. I would say John George was less volume than Cyrus. So, so uh, sorry, um, less volume than Le Cirque. Um, so Le Cirque was about quality, but it was also volume. John George was about meticulous and precision. It really was. I mean, you'd have rulers out. You'd have, you know, they'd come by and they'd ch- take a look at every cut in a ruler. And if it wasn't right, garbage, that's it. No, redo, 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 redo. And, you know, I had thought coming from Le Cirque two and a half years, and that's one of the top restaurants at the time. It was top one, two restaurants. It's just a different type of cooking. It's a different type of precision um, that John George does and a whole different style of food, too. So me being Mr. Cocky going over there being like, oh, I, I know that I worked meat station. I started right on cold station, right on Garmage, which is where I should should be starting. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to slay this. I'm going to be back up to meats in six months. No problem. And it was not the case. It was a whole nother set of tools I had to learn a whole nother. I mean, just, just big thing out of that restaurant cleanliness, Mm. how to work clean, organized and, and concise. It it was just, it was insane how clean and organized that, that place. You know, it's hard to learn that to kind of paint that picture of what that looks like on a podcast, but like in the most simplest way, communicate to us what, that cleanliness looks like, what the job done right looks like. So when you look into a kitchen now and and you look into someone's kitchen, you see things out. You see plastic wrap. You see uh, bottles of oil. You see maybe salt containers, you know. At John George, nothing was out on the counters except for what you're plating and what you're cooking at that moment. So you didn't see anything. Everything was in a drawer hidden away. All counters were clean. It didn't even look like service was going on. It, looked, it didn't look like if you remove the cooks, it looked like we were closed. Mm. Um, you, did, you could not bring anything out that was not being worked on at that second. Um, everything in metal trays, like, there was nothing that was allowed even, you know, we would, we would have dry storage downstairs. Even if we wanted to bring salt upstairs or oil or anything, you'd have to bring it up in a metal tin. You, you could not have any branding out in that kitchen. Nothing. He, he didn't, he was so meticulous about everything, like how things looked, how your station were, how you presented yourself. To this day, he is the most cleanest chef I've ever seen. And he works. He, he gets back there, at least at the time I worked with him. John George was behind the line. He was cooking. He was working. He expedited five days a week at, at his mothership, John George. Um, his jacket did not have a wrinkle, mm. did not have a, I, I, I don't know what he, I don't know what kind of material it was, or, <laughs> but did not have a wrinkle in it. So he set that standard of, hey, you look the part if you want to be the part. So and he was. What did this high standard of cleanliness, how did this translate to performance and uh, outcome? Well, it's, you know, when you have to, you know, hold yourself in that 
clean regards or that, or just a certain look to yourself, then it translates to the, what the plate ends up looking like. So, you know, you look at the plate and if you put the sauce on and it's messy or, or you slice a piece of meat and your knife's not sharp and it kind of pulls the meat a little bit, it doesn't look clean. And his whole, his food and his person of who he is, is clean. So he's extending the whole, it sounds like the, the, the brand, the John George brand was clean and he extended that brand to the back of the house. Everywhere. I love Front it. Front of the house, back of the house. I'm sure if you went in his car, you wouldn't find a piece of dirt. <laughs> you would not find it. Um, so anything else we learned from John George before moving on to this opportunity you got at um, the Little Nell in Boulder, Colorado? Uh, or Aspen, Aspen. You, you know, the biggest lessons were the, the cleanliness and, and just trying to be precise, but also really just you have to be patient. You're not going to go into someone else's kitchen and think you know what you're doing because you worked at another kitchen and you did great there. Um, you have to start from the bottom again. So start from the bottom and work your way. Yeah, and the whole purpose of you leaving um, uh, Le Cirque was to go to another restaurant to learn more because you you didn't have that that traditional like come up like you kind of took a shortcut. So you need to learn different perspectives, different kitchens. So the whole purpose of you being there was to, to take in more from a different perspective. Absolutely, so, yeah, awesome stuff. Um, all right, so I think that. You said you didn't have a hard hard stop, right? Because I think this might go over a little more than an hour and 15 minutes. No, I'm good. All right, cool. So now what what brought you to uh, this opportunity in um, Aspen? Was it the same deal where you kind of hit a ceiling or were they were they pulling another trade? Was it trade season? So, you know, <laughs> I, I'm born and raised in New York and my, my goal had always been to get to California. I wanted to see what they do in California. I'd okay. been reading about these restaurants, California, California. And... Um, before I went out there, um, I had a good friend who um, was also cooking as well. And he was like, hey, he's like, there's a great chef that's working at the Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, his name is Paul Wade. He's like, you need to go out and stop and see him. And I was like, I'm not stop- What do you mean stopping? I'm heading to California. I'm not stopping anywhere. And, you know, working in New York, you know, just going back quick, those those minimum are 16-hour days. Minimum. Mm-hmm. Like, you you don't. Don't even think you're working a 15-hour day. Minimum, you're working 16 to 18 hours a day. So I was heading out to California, and I, I did happen to stop by on this recommendation, stop at the Little Nell, check it out. I stopped in the, at the Little Nell, and talk about a difference between Aspen and Manhattan. When I got to Aspen and I pulled in there, I kept looking for downtown. I was like, where's downtown? And I asked this woman on the street, I was like, could you tell me where downtown Aspen is? She's like, this is downtown. I was like, what? It's like five blocks by five blocks. I was like, this can't be downtown. So then I ended up, um, you know, staying the night there. Next day I went into the little mail. I spoke to the chef there, uh, Paul Wade, terrific guy, really great guy. And he's like, Hey, he's like, you know, why don't you do a stage with us a couple days, you know, hang out here a few days. They ended up putting me up at the hotel, which was awesome. Um, and the, the, the changing factor, I think, of my life was that restaurant and the people there. Because, again, going back, it was 16, 18 hours at least working in Manhattan. There's no way around it. That's, you either do that or you don't have a job. But at the Little Nell, it was crazy. I met these cooks there, um, Maddie, Tyson, Phil, which I know all the guys pretty well still. And those guys, it was nuts. I worked dinner service with them. Then the next day, they were like, hey, you know, we're going to get up. It was the summertime. We're going to get up, and we're going to go, and we're going to ride bikes, or we're going to go hiking tomorrow. We're going to go tubing or rafting. And I was like, crazy. we got to work tomorrow. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, we don't have to be in until like 2. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, but we'll come in at like, you know, maybe like 1 noon, get, get ahead. A little bit, and I was like, "But you're gonna get up and do like it just I it was so foreign to me to my my whole life had been work 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 
get enough sleep so you can get back to work. That's mm-hmm. all that's all I had to do. Get enough sleep just to make sure you're working. That's it. And it was crazy. I met him the next morning. We hung out in town. We we saw I mean, I saw all these outdoor things. I'd never seen outdoor kind of a Adventures or anything, and yeah, I was like, a great this spot crazy. for you too, Aspen. Yeah. It, it was nuts. And then we went to work that day, and I was like, "This is great." And we went out after service and did it again the next day because I did a three day stage. And they're like, "Oh man, you got to come here in the winter. We go skiing before our shift. We go snowboarding." And I was like, "This is insane." Yeah. So I honestly, I had a, I had a stage lined up at the French Laundry, and I was supposed to head out there, and I ended up calling um, <laughs> Corey Lee was the chef there at the time. Um, and I actually, no, I think it was Timothy cause there was two opportunities to work at, at, at the laundry, which I'll tell you that I'm not allowed there anymore. Um, oh, man. and I, I turned down, I said, Hey, next week, I know I'm supposed to be out in California. I'm supposed to stage with you guys next week. I said, um, you know, I, I have to politely decline the position because I've taken another position. And this so. is, this must be like, who turns down that opportunity? Like not a lot of people. They must've been like, what? Usually when that opportunity is turned down, it's because you're shitting your pants because you're afraid you won't be able to handle it. Right. They were, <laughs> they were really, you could tell they were upset. They, oh, were, they were very offended by me not at least coming out there to stage with them. Um, so I said, you know, someday maybe I'll make it out there. And I tried to leave it, you know, great. And I was like, Hey, it's, it's not till next week. I don't even know if I have a job with you guys, you know, and I know that I have a job here and these are really good people. So, you know, I just said, Hey, I I apologize. I will not be coming out to stage next week. So I took the job there and it was, it was, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing to see that you could do a little bit of, of balance with life and, you know, the chef there, Paul Wade, he worked his butt off. I mean, that guy was there before us, left after us. But on his days off, you know, I would see, you know, pictures on, you know, his Facebook and or just, you know, he, he'd go out and he'd, you know, the guy would go skiing. Like, yeah. And I'm like, he's not tired. He just finds his energy to go mountain biking. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was it was awesome to see that, how he could do a work balance. And I, I wanted a little balance. I'd never seen that before. And I was like, this is this is awesome. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you started this portion of your life, or at least sharing the story of this portion of your life with saying it was a transitional or a transformative time for you where it really changed you. And I think it's safe to say that the change was discovering the work-life balance. Um, why is that so important? How, how, how were you different after that point? I think when you just work, 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 you put yourself in a tunnel. You get tunnel vision. You you, you become almost like a robot. Mm-hmm. When you give yourself a little bit of time off and a little bit of time to think, um, I mean, you, you can ask my wife. She she that, all I do is think about food and cooking on my days off. Everything's still about that. But then it gets me to think outside the box. Yeah. It gets me to think outside that that tunnel, and that helps me get a little more creative with with everything. Yeah. You can redirect that energy that you're putting into your body, moving and hustling to your frontal lobe. Cause that takes a lot of energy to be creative. We don't realize how much energy that that creative process takes because we're not physically moving, but that, that our energy takes up most of our, our brains take up most of our energy. It's, I think there's a percentage, but it's absurd. So yeah, you, you do need to be still and just kind of have time for you and just have time to just think and to dream and vision and to get creative, to turn on that creative process. Uh, Absolutely. And not, not only just food, but anything, the way we run a business, um, you know, I'll I'll pop up on my day off and be like, why the heck, you know, why are we doing this? Why, why, why do we order this when we could, you know, do this instead? And, and why don't I get a second opinion on, you know, the, the electrician? You just think when you're in the, in the trenches, just get things done, just fix it, get it done. You don't think what's the smart approach to anything. Yeah, You need yeah. some time. I love it. I love it. Um, any other key lessons? I mean, you, you mentioned chef Paul was a huge influence. What, what lessons on how to conduct yourself and how to be, did he teach you? He was a guy that he prepped and did more work than most chefs I've ever seen. Like it, the dude would, we'd get in like, you know, 70 pound halibut and he would slay this thing down <laughs> in, you know, 
20 minutes and just have it done portion, then just move on to the next job. He was just uh, like, he was a big hands-on chef, really, really hands-on and just not afraid to do any job. Yeah. Again, going back to what we said earlier, nobody's going to work harder than you. So set that standard and, you know, bring people up to your level. Um, we're going to come back to the little Nell because this is, you know, your first, your first, uh, stop at the little Nell. Then you finally do make it to the West coast. And for anybody who's like listening to this and going, wow, this is, just keeps going on and on. So we're almost at the <laughs> point where you, where you opened your own restaurant. Um, Two more stops, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we could do them. We could do them quickly. Um, I'll stay all day, man, because this is gold. I'm loving the conversation. I want to respect your time, though. Um, so, whatever you're willing to give, I'm willing to take. So the the great thing is, like you said, networking. And when when you work hard, people notice. So when I was finishing up at the Little Nell, it was about two and a half years. Uh, Richard Betts, who was the master som there at the time, he knew Bobby Stuckey, who now owns Frosca mm-hmm. here in Boulder, and he, I said, I wanted to, I. I Big, you know, story. I met a girl. She it was here in Boulder. I was in Aspen. I was commuting back and forth on my day off, and I was like, I want to try to get out to Boulder. But this was years ago. This was about fifteen years ago, and there was no restaurants here fifteen years ago that really intrigued me. But then Richard at the Nell told me that Bobby was opening up a restaurant here, and he's like, Bobby's a great guy. He's terrific front of the house guy. Uh, he's going to open up a you know great restaurant here. So I was like, wow, this could be an opportunity. So I got the introduction to Bobby. Um, and I met Bobby and I met Bobby's business partner, Lachlan, and they told me what they were going to do here and open up. And I was like, this is great. Cause it was two people that held higher standards, standards like that I'm used to surrounding myself with. Mm-hmm. Cause going back to my dad, keep yourself yep. surrounded with great people. Yep. And I, I didn't have that here at the time, 15 years ago. Now, now in Boulder, there's plenty of places, but 15 years ago, they didn't have that. So I was very fortunate that Frosca was going to be opening. So I got that opportunity and it was so exciting to help them open. And I I started the restaurant as the chef de cuisine there and and witnessed a restaurant two months prior to opening through two and a half years. And just to see what goes into the place, just to see, you know, how, I mean, we were, we were, we were doing construction in there as well. We were doing tile work. We were doing, you know, and just to see that what goes into an actual restaurant yeah. was eye opening. Yeah, that's a huge point right there. So many people go to work for restaurants that are opened and well established because they want to go work for the best, but they forget that you know if you have aspirations of one day opening your own restaurant, there's a whole other side of the business that's a complete and separate piece of its own, which is opening a restaurant, right? Absolutely. And go to work for people like Bobby Frasca or Bobby Stuckey, um, who are like just like at the top of the game and, and, and learn on their dollar how to open a restaurant because even these guys are going to make mistakes. You could open two, three, four, five, six restaurants. Every new restaurant's a unique beast. So if you're a part of those openings, you're going to learn so much. You're going to be able to save so much money later on because you got to see other people make the mistakes, right? Definitely. And you got to see people do it right. So um, do you want to reflect on that? I mean, that that's the great thing too is, you know, when they open the restaurant, you know, he might kill me, but you could say you know what you're doing. When you open your first restaurant, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you have an idea. Yeah, it's a completely different beast. It's a, it's a it's a it's a a thing in its own. Opening a restaurant, like you might know how to run a restaurant, but opening a restaurant is something that you should not do by yourself the first time. No, in my and and you know you have a game plan, and once you get to that start, you're like, okay, we got to scrap some of this game plan. We got yeah. like this is not actually practical. Yeah. This is not. And that helped me because we we, used to, we did a lot of things there from scratch. We did a lot of things where we didn't we didn't know what we were doing when we first opened, but we created the systems, we created the procedures, the policies, and that then really helped me out 
opening up Oak later on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. And just to kind of give a little more perspective, um, or context, uh, Bobby Stuckey and his business partner with, uh, Frasca, is it Fra- Frasca or Fra- I'm uh, saying it wrong? Frasca. Frasca. Thank you. Um, so many restaurants in my life. It's hard to keep them all straight. <laughs> uh, Frasca, uh, th- what, like a, kind of like a, I think a three or four times they've been nominated for best service. Um, James Beard, like they, they won it last year, yeah. last year too. Yeah. They, and they keep on winning. They keep on going. It's kind of like another union square. It's like the Western union square hospitality. Like with the, like that level of service, they keep on winning the best with service. I know, especially Definitely. in wine program too, which is what they're really well known for. Right. Absolutely. So for, for a little context, like this is a great restaurant group that you're able to put yourself. I mean, every restaurant you work for up to this point has been out of this the world, but, um, the reason why I'm bringing up this, this level of service, um, what did you learn about service? Cause they do service really well. Like, some would say better than anybody else. So what, what lessons on service did you pick from being in this group? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it starts with having a leader. Like we said, an example of somebody that I remember just doing pre-services there were so thorough. Um, they were so, and I, I'd heard some pre-services before the John George pre-services reminded me of these pre-services. Mm-hmm. Um, they were extremely thorough. They were very informative. Um, and again, holding, I'd, I'd always seen, you know, the back of the house held to a standard, but, you know, in the front of the house in some places, I didn't get to experience that. I didn't see that. And I saw that and it was the same thing as what I was seeing in the back. So I was like, wow, this, this is a restaurant that hits on all cylinders because they take every part of the restaurant serious. Mm. It's not just, well, the food's good, but the service is okay. The service is good, but the food's okay. It was, they, they focus on both items, um, really well. And I think that's, you know, that hits home. So I want to pull back a layer. You said that they had, uh, their pre-service was like very thorough. What does a, 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 pre-service done right look like? What elements does it have? Well, you're going through, especially in that restaurant, you have almost all of your reservations are, uh, all your guests are reservations. So you have notes on all of your guests and and taking meticulous notes on them. Um, You know, so-and-so does not like sparkling water. Do not offer sparkling water. Mm -hmm. So-and-so only drinks red wine. Do not bring, you know, white wine over. Um, They have meticulous notes on everybody. So this way, before the guest even comes in, because they've been a repeat diner, you know what they like, where they like to sit, um, where they prefer, you know, to be. And and that goes a long ways for people. And they would go through that. They'd also go through the wines thoroughly. They'd go through the food thoroughly. Um, Steps of service of how to properly, you know, drop plates, how to bus plates. And, you know, to some people it seems like, well, we have to hear this every day, but it's it's a great reminder of every day, these are the important basics, and, and they would hit those basics home every single day. So just to summarize, uh, the things that they would go over were the people, whether you're using open table or whatever uh, customer relationship management tool, they're probably pulling information from that. And They'd always say guest. Yes. If, if, I, if I said customer, they Sorry. would throw me out the window. <laughs> guest guest <laughs> relationship uh, management tool or whatever. Uh, yeah, but that good point. Uh, so the people, the, the food, uh, and the steps of service, and you said that they would repeat the same thing things over and over again. I had, uh, on the show, um, from the, the, uh, the of course I'm, I'm going to draw a blank right now. His name will come back to me. Um, 24 standards of service, uh, Horst Schultze from, okay. you know, Horst, the name Horst Schultze, right? From yep. why, what is the fr- name of the hotel? It's, it's one of the most well-named um, luxury hotels. Um, I know what you're talking about. They're in, it's a named in rap songs. Anyway, it's killing me that I can't think of the name of the hotel right now, but it'll, it'll, that will eventually come back to me too. But Horst Schulze was the CEO of this hotel uh, corporation, and it's killing me that I can't. Th- you guys are laugh at me when I figure it out. Um, but 24 standards of service, you'd go through one standard every day, and it would repeat. 
every 24 days, they would start from the, the number one steps or the number one standard of service. And they would just hit, but you, people need to be reminded. It can't, you can't just tell them once on training day that it has to be repetitive over and over and over again to really have it stick. Um, I think we're beating this to death right now, but the, the Ritz, that's what it is. The Ritz, the Ritz Carlton. Carlton. Yeah. Ritz Carlton. Thank you. God damn it, Eric. All right. Keep going. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, that, that I took away from that restaurant. Most of all, you know, going back to treat it like it's yours. Someday it will be. I treated that like I was the owner there. I was, I, I regarded myself as the chef there, even though I wasn't, I, I was like, I'm the chef here. I'm responsible for this. I took all of that weight on my shoulders because I knew I wanted my own restaurant at that point. And I said, someday I, I, I want that. And I'd worked there open it up and then work there for about two and a half years, two and three quarter years. And I still had that itch to get to California. Yeah. So again, making those connections and, and, and why it's so important that when you're at work, you know, like really represent yourself well, like work hard, you know, treat others well, because you can use people like Bobby. I said, Hey Bobby, I, I, I love it here. I, nothing against this place, but I still, I got to get, I want to see California. I, I want to see it. Yeah. And he was like, absolutely understand any places you have in mind. And I said, well, I have a place called The Laundry, French Laundry. <laughs> and, say, is this the second time around? <laughs> and Bobby was the uh, psalm there. Oh. So Bobby had a great connection there. And I said, another place that really interested me is Cyrus. And he's like, that's great. I know Nick, who's the front of the house uh, owner there as well. He's like, why don't you check out both? So, you know, I put in, and something for the kids out there, I put in a four-month notice at Frosca, four months. And I told them, at, you know, at the end of four months, then I'm going to go out to California. So last month approached. I got the U-Haul, packed it all up, took off, just in the car, no place to live out there, nothing. I was like, I'll figure it out when I get out there. So my girlfriend and I, we drove out there, and um, I set up the, the stage first at Cyrus. And it was a one-night stage. The French laundry would have been a three-night stage. So the first week was Cyrus stage, and I wanted to do a couple days there. So... The, the Cyrus stage that I got into was pretty, pretty crazy. I, you don't see these stages as much. So one of my good friends right now who lives here in Denver, he was working there at the time, um, and he was on Fish Station. And the owner there, Doug Keen, who, phenomenal chef, we'll talk about him in a minute, he, um, he told Amos, my buddy, he was like, hey, when this stage comes in, this guy, you know, he's worked in New York City. Let's see what this, you know, let's see what this piece of, you know. I don't know if I should be cursing on here, but yeah, he, It's an open, and people he, curse in the restaurant industry. It's a, so he's like, let's see what this, out. you know, little, little shit can do. And he sent home the meat cook and threw me right on meat station, like on my stage. Basically sent a guy home and put me on there and it's like, you're working meat tonight. And I was like, okay, great. And to be honest with you, I had worked meat before at Le Cirque, and I was like, I, I can temp meat. I know I can temp meat. I'm confident in that. Mm -hmm. And that's all I had to do was temp meat. But, you know, right, looking through my notes, it was so hard for me to temp a piece of meat in my, in my diary. I'm like, I'm never going to get this. I'm, it's so hard. It feels soft. But it, then, you know, it feels hard, and it, it, was, it was raw when I cut it. I look back at my notes, you know, still to this day, I'll look. And I'm like, you know what? I, that used to be hard for me. It's not hard for me anymore. So I went into Cyrus and I just got on the meat station and, you know, everything was portioned ready for me to go. He was like, fire, you know, a squab, bring up a squab. And every, not again, not to toot the horn, but every piece of meat I put up, whether it be the squab, we had Wagyu on the menu, we, we had venison, we had pork, uh, loin, uh, pork tenderloin, everything I put up, I, I nailed it. And, he was just like, at the end of the night, he's like, you want a job here? Yeah, this is the byproduct of all those standards you set for yourself. You're bringing back the journal, right? Yep. So now we're seeing the journal resurface in your life because you can reference it, right? You can go back and check your notes and reference it to, to keep that level of, of standards. But by, by tracking yourself and 
by always being better and always showing up a better version of yourself today than tomorrow, like you're going to prepare yourself but by doing, going through all the motions, right? Like all the, the, the tools these mentors gave you, it made you prepared for this opportunity. Definitely. Uh, and I just want to point out this stuff. It's so important. Um, so take it from there. Yeah. It just reinforces that, you know what? I, I can do it cause I have done it before. And, and, Sometimes you, you try to psych yourself into things and by reading it, then sometimes you're like, look at this, this seemed impossible at the mm. time. It's not. So, you, and then at that time I was kind of like, I didn't, I, again, I, I don't know anything still to this day, but I was like, you could throw me on any station and I'm not going to probably be the best cook there at the time until I get some repetition, but I'm going to float. I'm not going to sink. I'm not. So he offered me the job. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, it was like a 14 hour stage. My girlfriend at the time, she just stayed in... We didn't have a house at the time, so she stayed in the car the whole time, and she walked around the town, and I felt so bad. And the next day, I had another stage, because I was like, I want to see it again. And I'd already been offered the job. And I went in there, and, and to this day, you know, it, it's, it's hard for me to say this, because, I, I don't know, it, it's a little difficult, but, but I'd say pound for pound, that food there was amazing. Mm. It, it was unbelievable. I mean, his name was Doug Keen, the chef there. And the way he did flavors, he was similar to John George. Where it was French technique, but he put Asian flavors mm. into it. Um, and John George's food is second to none. It really isn't. But then when I saw Doug's approach to it as well, it was a smaller kitchen, didn't have the budget of what a John George has. And I was like, this guy is doing this, you know, kind of food, this, this amazing food with half the amount of staff. Um, and it, it just, it kind of opened up a light bulb to me. I was like, wow, you know, you don't need to have this. His restaurant, by the way, Cyrus was gorgeous. Mm. I mean, it was, it was yeah. amazing restaurant, but you know, John George had all the bells and whistles and all the, you know, he, he, I think he had a different budget basically. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it kind of, it, it has a light bulb. You're like, maybe I can do some nice food someday and I don't need to be in Manhattan. I don't need to you know, be, be in, in, you know, the, the, the big apple to do this. And that's a great, I mean, that right, that light bulb, I think, I mean, to go learn from the best, you have to go to these places like New York city or Los Angeles back in the nineties and the early two thousands. But today, ever since 2007, where everybody had access to everybody's kitchen because of things like Instagram. And now the bar is being risen across the, the standards. And because of our access to information and knowledge, we can go online and learn this stuff. Um, more and more amazing restaurants are popping up all over the country where you can go and learn. And if you're looking to open a business, you don't have to go compete with the, the big, don't go to New York City. Go to a smaller emerging market, say like Boulder back in the early 2000s. Um, I don't know if that's what was going through your mind, a smaller market, less competitive. Take my big city skills to a smaller place. Well, for me, it was it – was, now I can do great food, but I don't have to be back in the city where there's no balance mm. You know, because th- then there's not the balance. That's so right. I can do great food in a place that's outside of New York City where – you know, the balance to me, it, just in my opinion, some people are like, oh, are you kidding me? I, New York City, in my opinion, is the funnest place to go. Anytime I can vacation, I go back to New York City. But to me, I couldn't find a balance in that city. I, I couldn't. I mm-hmm. was just drawn to just, I have to work. Yeah. It's that mentality. Yeah. But I was seeing that in, in uh, Sonoma County. And I was like, this guy's doing great, great food. Some of the best food I've ever seen, but in, in a relaxed environment outside of work. And uh, that's where that balance came back. And I was like, you can do this kind of food anywhere. You can do, if you have the talent, obviously, I mean, <laughs> not everyone can do what Doug Keen does, but yeah, but you, you can do it and it, you don't have to be in a monster city like that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm assuming this was the second time you turned down the French oh. laundry. <laughs> so yeah, get, get done with day two of the stage. I was like, yeah, chef, I, I want the job here. I, I want, I like it. The food's amazing. Uh, the people here are great. You're, he was a great chef. So the next week I had a stage set up at the laundry and, um, I called them. 
And I was like, hey, listen, I said, uh, I'm not going to be taking the stage next week. I said, I, I just took the job with Cyrus. And and I got a little confused with who was who, but I think this time it was Corey Lee I talked okay. to. And I was basically told, please don't apply with us ever again. And I was like, man, that kind of hurt a little bit. But, uh, you know, because, again, I wasn't guaranteed a job. Yeah. I wasn't told I was going to be yeah. – I was just there to try out. And, and I happened to find a place – that I liked working with the people that were around me, and I thought they would elevate me. Yeah, I can see where they're coming from. They they, they operate at such a high level of expertise, and they they have so many people that are, that they're filtering through. So for them to take the time to consider you, that's probably a big decision to even give you the green light to get in the front door. So for them, because their their standards are so out, they're outliers, you know. So I can I get it because they they take the time to consider you absolutely. Whereas other places will be like, oh, you want a stage? Come on in. Like I totally agree. I get there. I mean, so I see where they're coming from, but it's it's still a funny story. Um, all right. So now I think um you you come back to Boulder, Colorado, or sorry, this time Aspen, back to Aspen, right for uh, your your role as executive chef for the Little Nell, um, yeah, or executive I- sous chef. So I was in in California. I really miss Colorado. I was like, Colorado is pretty amazing. I, and I said, I'm either going to Colorado or I'm going back to New York, one or the other. And Colorado was a lot easier of a, a decision for me because I was like, I, I just missed the place. Yeah. I missed it a lot. I missed the people there. I missed it a lot. And um, yeah, I ended up coming back as executive sous chef, basically ran that all aspects of that hotel. And it really got me the confidence I needed to open my own place because that place I had to deal with four different ticket boards, room service. Uh, my job as exec sous chef was basically fill in everywhere. Do not let a problem. Don't let it get to the executive chef. My job was to basically put the plug in before yeah. it got to the chef. So at this point, I mean, I actually have some notes about you and how you influence other people at this restaurant because I've had uh, past guest on the show, Bryce Gilmore. Actually, Bryce has not been on the show. I'm still working on him. I've gotten his dad on the show, though. Uh, but Sam Hellman Mass, uh, Mark Buley, um, these are some great guys, and, and I interviewed them, and that's how you became on my radar. They both suggested I get in touch with you. Um, one thing I want to talk about here, the, the lessons that I want to go into, um, what they had to say about you, starting with Sam, is that you loved to teach, and what made you a good teacher was your patience. you want to get into that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the big thing is at the time, especially for me, in my role, my role was to be a teacher. I was the exec sous chef there at the time. If you're if you're the exec chef, sometimes you've got to do a little bit more. Like my job nowadays, I wish I could be a little bit more like I was back then. But there's so many other things I have to look at now. Um, but I miss that teaching aspect, and I think that's that's a big part of the job. And I do it, but I want to do it more. Mm. And what, back then when I worked with Sam and Mark um, – I was able to, and I thought at the time, my job is to do what Jens did for me mm-hmm. and to bring and these guys up. And I saw it in up. that. I saw that part. Like I saw the impression that Jens made in you because you you hear, you heard it in the stories that Sam and, and Mark told regarding you. So that that did carry over, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, I I saw managing, you know, after a couple of years and, you know, before this job is if I can make people better around me, it's, it's for one going to make for better food, but it's also going to make everybody's job easier, including myself. So I need to spend that time with them. I need to kind of 
give them what I want. Yeah. And, and Sam, what Sam specifically says that he would be a pain in your ass. Oh my He'd God. be there asking every little fucking question you could get out. And he said that, that regardless of how much of a pain he was, you were always patient. You were always willing to answer the question. And he really admired that about you. Do you want to speak to patience at all? Sure. Um, I, I honestly didn't think I was that patient, but I guess, <laughs> I guess I was, but Sam was definitely, he was a challenging guy. Um, because he was really green too coming into cooking. And I just put myself in his shoes and thought, well, you hey, were in his shoes. You were that yep. kid that had no experience showing up three times one after another to get in the front door. Like you could, you could sympathize or empathize or sympathize would be the correct term. Sure. Um, and, and you know, it's not even, you really think about it. If, if you like cooking, you don't mind talking cooking. Like mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, we're already at a half hour. I could spiel this. We could do this for weeks. Yeah. Um, it's just, you, you like cooking, you like doing that. So, you know, if we were doing like, I don't know, uh, 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 half chicken. I'd be like, all right, Sam, you want to get the pan really hot, but this is how Sam is. I'd be like, Pam, you want to get this pan here? Like, Why do you want to get hot? So that when you put the skin in there, it gets crispy right away and it doesn't stick. You don't want to poach it. How come you don't want to poach it? Like I'm telling you everything <laughs> I said to him, I was like, okay, you want to use this rice bran oil because it doesn't smoke. Well, how come it doesn't smoke? And I'm like, we're never going to get to cook this chicken. Like, this thing's never going to hit the pan. But that's how Sam was. He kept asking questions yeah. and questions and questions. I mean, that's also a good lesson too. Like take advantage of those people you're surrounding yourself with. If you're surrounded by the best, like be a sponge. You know, ask why, learn. It's it's you're going to be a pain in the ass, but you're going to come out the other end much better. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And you know, I would do with him too. He'd ask so many questions that then at some point I'd say, okay, I'm going to tell you this much. Now we're going to start cooking the chicken, but I want you to go home and tell me about this chicken. Tell me about this cut because I've already given you like half hour of information before we even started cooking it. Now you need to put in a little bit of your information, your time. And he would go do it. And it was a test. And as long as he would go put in the effort himself, then I didn't mind spending any time with him. If he's going to put it in. So now bringing the conversation to Mark, Mark said that what he learned about you was intentionality, being really intentional with everything you do, living intentionally. And um, he said that you you were great at showing people how you cared. And um, I'm going to make you tell us a story about a pilot that a faulty pilot that was giving you guys trouble that ended up kind of uh, not exploding, maybe exploding is the right term, but ended up burning an intern and you went off on maintenance because of this. Oh, I so, should have been fired. <laughs> yeah. But let's, let's dial back. We'll save that as a teaser. Uh, talk to us about intentionality. What do you think he was referencing with your intentionality? Um, to me, I've always thought anyone that takes care of me, and again, now it's really relevant because I own restaurants. So they're, they're really taking care of, of me. I thought this as well, even when I was younger, I was like, if they're, if they're there and they're working and they're doing what I'm saying and they're, they're taking care of me, I have to take care of them. Or I just wanted to, mm-hmm. I, I just, I've always been raised that take care of others and they'll take care of you. It should come back. It should be yeah. full circle. Yeah. Um, and we had this girl, Julia there. Um, I believe she was from Argentina and, um, th- this pilot, I, I had, put a requisition in for it to get it fixed for three days straight because it was leaking gas. Yeah, it's dangerous. And she came in one day and she went to light it and it blew out the front and like singed the top of her hair and some of her eyebrows. But she was a trooper. She was like, I'm fine, chef. I'm fine, chef. <laughs> I was so mad because she worked, I mean, and I, you know, you say this in the kitchen, you're like, I, I want my cooks to go to battle with me. Mm-hmm. I want them to go with me, not for me. I want them to go to battle with me. Mm-hmm. And she was one of those cooks that every day I pushed the heck out of her. I mean, I, she'd be like one minute out, chef. I'm like, I need it. I want it now. I don't <laughs> not one minute. I want it now. And you know, she'd have every single saute pan full and I didn't care. I didn't want an excuse. I wanted her to just say yes, chef and go. And she would. So I, 
created a bond with all of my cooks there, um, especially with her. And when I saw that, instantly I just turned to rage. Papa Bear came just out, right? Rage. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think at the time I was like 125 pounds, so I mean, not not that big of a Papa Bear, more like a squirrel. <laughs> so I got so mad, I went down to the engineer's office in the hotel, and I looked for the guy because if he was there, I probably would have, I oh, would have tried to do something. Um, <laughs> And I, he wasn't there, which was crazy because I destroyed his office. Oh, I man. absolutely, I flipped his desk over. I ripped things off the wall. I was so angry because, you know, he had been told about this. He's not looking out for people. He's not looking out. He's, you know, they could say they're busy all they want, but, you know, it's an emergency. Yeah. You put it at the top of the order. But what we're going to pull from this story is you can tell people to your get blue in the face how much you care for them, but they won't listen until you show them how much you care. And your actions speak so loud. And when you show people how much you care to them with your actions and what you're willing to do to to defend uh, the safety or just the, the integrity of your team, the people that you're going to work with every day, you, they won't care for you until you care for them. Yeah. And, and that's the lesson right there. You awesome have to black stuff. out sometimes. Yeah. And <laughs> I think this is a, this was the last stop before going uh, and, and breaking off to open your own, your own place, right? So yes. this is the first time in Restaurant Unstoppable history that we take a break to thank our sponsors after an hour of recording, but I will try to wrap this up within, with, with respectful time, but thank you so much. I'm loving every second of it. We'll be right back. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. We're back, and now it's time to talk about you breaking off uh, with your business partner. I'll let you tell the story to open your first restaurant. Take it from there. So long story short, when I worked at Frosca, uh, Brian Dayton was the bartender there. I was... Um, in the kitchen, we met each other briefly, um, and you know, I was at. Then fast forward, I'm in Aspen. He called me and he's like, "Hey, would you ever be interested in opening a restaurant in Boulder?" And I was like, "I, I love my time in Boulder. I thought Boulder was great. I, I did, and, I, and it's still in Colorado, so it's a win." So I came down. Um, we looked at a space that his friend was going to be putting up for lease, and we were able to get the first first jump on it. Um, yeah, we, we pounce on that opportunity quick. So um, tell us a little more about Brian, uh, this relationship, what made him a good partner? Because I think a lot of times people say partners, partnerships are the worst way to go in the restaurant industry. I don't believe, I don't agree with that at all. I think to be the best, you need partnerships, you need help. So what what is it that makes a good partner? What was it about Brian that made him a good partner? So what was great with Brian and still is, is he handles everything front of the house. I handle everything back of the house. And he puts that time and that care into the front like I put into the back. And it's nice and refreshing to see somebody that cares so much about their end of things. Um, you know, because you don't want to be the guy, you know, doing everything. And you're like, well, 
you know, now there's no, no one's really caring about how our guests are so being treated. S- same standards. That's the, the, the first thing that made him a good same. partner. What else? Um, also drive. Like he, he wants to, I describe Brian, if we had a Ferrari, his foot would be on the gas pedal to the floor. My hand would be on emergency brake, just <laughs> ripping that thing up. That's how we kind of work. He, he goes, he just takes chances and goes. I'm definitely a lot more of a, I have to think about things. I have to spend nights kind of going over them. He, he wants to go, 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 go. So actually, so the, the first thing you mentioned was um, that he compliments your strengths. So you're good in the back of house. He's good in the front of house. The second thing was uh, same standards. And the third thing was his, his drive, his, his want, his desire. It was there, uh, which some people say desire is more important than passion, right? So anything else we need to know about Brian, uh, about you know what he brought to the table, anything we need to know about partnerships? You know? I mean, yeah, when we first opened, his, his um, position was bartender at Oak. And his cocktails, I'd never really known cocktails before. Never really, you know, you, you get out of work, you have a couple, you know, Tocatis yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. stuff. Never knew cocktails. And he made cocktails, and I drank, and I was like, these are awesome. I've never, yeah. it, it introduced me to the cocktail world, really. Because yep. um, I'd never had them before. Never been to a cocktail so this lounge. this is 2010, you know? right? So this is 2010. A, a right around the time where that the cocktail moving, movement starting to take off, where people are creating their own bitters, and they're, yep. they're treating it with that same level of uh, seriousness that chefs are doing with starting from scratch in, in the, the, slow, the slow movement, right? Exactly. Yeah. Keep yeah. Going. He, when we, we, we you know budgeted equipment for the restaurant, I'm looking at fryers, ranges, uh, the wood uh, uh, grill. He's looking at three different ice machines, and I'm like, "Do we really need three different ice machines?" I'm like, "Oh my god!" Like different world, right? It's like thirty thousand dollars in ice machines, <laughs> and I'm like, "We don't need this. We don't need this." And then he would make me the drinks, one with like a big cube, one with a, cr- and I then got it. I was so, like, "I see." So I why see. is it? Why are these little details like ice so important? What's that doing? Well. For example, ice in particular, you know, he showed me that, hey, you put a big cube in something, it doesn't dilute it. Um, It keeps the integrity of what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And also, too, it it brings you to a place, you know, if you get a a tiki drink and it has the crushed ice in it, it just changes your your mentality of how the drink not only tastes, but but your your look of it. It affects the experience, right? Like, look at the size of that ice cube. Like, oh, Oh. how do they get it around? Like, you know, it's clear. How do they get it to go clear? Like, all these little things matter and it shows that you care. Um, So, the conversation, so you you agree, he says, let's open this restaurant at Boulder. We got a spot. We got, you got the spot. Take us through the process of, of creating the vision of of just making it all happen. I mean, do you know the story of how Elk opened? I, well, I don't know how it opened. I know that there was shortly after opening, there was an issue. That's brutal. But so, I wanted to let you get into it. So we were on such a tight budget that we did everything um, kind of ourselves with a handyman. So we did all the tile in there. We did painting. We, I mean, we did everything. And I learned some of that from opening up for Oscar yeah. with the handyman there. So it was awesome. Like I was like, I, I think I can tile, you know? Yeah. So we had some help doing it, but we, we had kind of an idea what we were doing. So we got the place open, took us about two and a half months to get everything done. Uh, get everything ordered, recipe tests. We got the place open, and we started out, and we were doing we were doing really well. I mean, we we hit it running. It's a great location um, from the start. Like we we were very fortunate. Four months into it, mm. um, I was heading to work. It was probably around ten o'clock in the morning, and I get to the restaurant, and all the cooks are like outside, and inside um, there's just a ton of smoke. And I was like, what the heck's going on? And I look up into the hood exhaust above the grill. We have a wood-fired grill and a wood-fired oven at Oak. Hence Oak, we burn a yep. ton of Oak. Okay. Uh, I look up in there, and where the filters are, it's it's all red. You could see red behind the filters. So there was a fire that had caught up in there. Okay. Um, basically, a spark went up into that hood. Um, 
And apparently, this is 2010, I didn't know at the time, we went to court and everything about this, you're not supposed to have wood fire and gas under the same hood. Well, we were bought a restaurant that was turnkey. We took okay. the, We thought we were fine. We didn't know anything about it. So the previous um, uh, operation was operating with oil or uh, with gas. Exactly. So you didn't know. Well, didn't sorry. Take- it, it operated with fryers under that hood. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. We put our grill underneath there. Um, we paid for someone to come clean out the whole thing. Yeah. Long story short, they never cleaned it. They signed off on Ugh. cleaning it. The fire department said they checked it. Nobody checked anything. And um, I might have just thrown the fire department under the bus. But uh, <laughs> basically through discovery, through all the court that we had to go through, no one properly cleaned it. No one checked it. No one set the Ansel system up. So the the fire was in there and the Ansel never tripped. Oh, man. Um, the sprinklers went off in the restaurant for four hours flooded the entire place and everything was totaled oh we didn't actually have any fire damage all the fire was contained in the chute but the sprinklers went off. yeah water damage and, is a bitch oh yeah. man so i mean i guess we, we need to address what did you do right in your business to set yourself up to be able to recover what things did you what boxes did you check that some other people might have overlooked that allowed you to recover uh, literally the box we checked was on insurance business interruption it okay. was literally <laughs> a box yeah. that was checked yeah. um we didn't even know we had it yeah. so obviously we knew we were going to be closed I, I really thought we'd be closed for maybe a few weeks or a month i, I really thought that cuz we'd only been open for 4 months that's it um and we found out, no, this is going to be a huge investigation. And also, by the way, the sprinklers were off for four hours. Your place is totaled. It yeah. has to, the entire place has to be, every floor, every piece of tile, everything has to be ripped out. Yeah. Everything. So was business interruption, business interruption something that had to be sold to you? Were you on the, were you, were you like, nope, we want that? Or were you like, um, maybe we should just get it? Like, where were you? Where we didn't even know we had it. Okay. So we sat down <laughs> so yeah, with the insurance company. About maybe two, three days after the fire, um, we sat down with the insurance company and they were like, hey, just so you guys know, you guys, smart, you got business interruption. And we were like, well, what is that? We didn't even know we had it. We were just paying for it. And what it did is it took us nine months to reopen. Nine months to redo because they had to redo the whole place. Think of starting a restaurant from scratch. Every employee got paid for nine months. Every wow. single one of our... So we were able to maintain and retain every single employee. Yeah. I, I did a deep dive conversation with a insurance broker about the importance of having insurance. And a lot of people overlook it and they think that's an area where they can save money to stay, to stay lean early on. Insurance is one of those things that like you don't realize how badly you need it until you need it. And um, you know, so really pay attention. Uh, there's a list of all the different packages, all the different elements of an insurance package that you should have that we go through in that interview if you want to check it out. But just wanted to draw the attention to, to that episode because it was a really powerful episode. So now, okay, nine months it took. Now, the cool thing about this, like the kind of the silver lining was you got to open a restaurant. I'm sure there's a couple of things you kind of scratched your head and said, well, we probably would have done that differently knowing. We probably would have set this up over here knowing. You got to do a test run. Absolutely. Right? And then start from scratch. So what did you learn with the first, like what did you do wrong the first time? Or what would you have done differently that you were able to do differently the second time? Well, we changed a lot of things. We, we you know, again, now we weren't in the tunnel. We had some time to say, hey, if we're going to reopen, let's do this. Um, you know, we, we changed menus out because we, we knew Boulder a little bit from working previously at Frosca, but that's all Italian. Mm-hmm. We were doing our own style of food. And then we kind of learned what people like mostly. And what, and what it taught me, too, is don't just make the food that you want to make as a chef. 
make the food that you want to make, but then that people want mm-hmm. also. A lot of people, I think, put things on the menu that they just want for them. Yeah. Um, it made me think, hey, you know what? I can tweak this a little bit and put this on you know, this way. And it also gave us nine months to really educate our staff. And we did. We Once a week, they had to show up. We went on tours. We, we visited. We, we had staff education. You know, Actually, twice a week we would do this. Um, and we went through everything. We went through wine knowledge, food knowledge. Um, proper steps of service, how you know how to properly cut things. Like we were able to really spend time with the staff. During I mean, that's that. a silver lining in itself, right there. Just having that time, that hand time to get to to grow those relationships with your staff. And one other thing that um, that I wanted to bring into to, to today's conversation that, that came from Mark Buley's conversation is that he left um, he left Chicago to come back to Colorado to help you. Um, reopen, which I think again is that testament to people won't care for you until you show them how much you care for them. And how much support did you get from people that were just in your network? Like, were you able to pull from all over to like, to, to like revive this, this second go at it? We were, um, I was fortunate to have Mark come in, help us reopen. Uh, my good buddy flip came and helped us open for about three months. Yeah. Uh, Vinny, my friend came and back and helped us open. Uh, Deanna, my friend came and helped us open. Yeah. So th- everybody was like, let's, let's get in here. I mean, literally seven people in this town. When we reopened, I shaved my head. I had a mohawk for the reopening. Cause I was like, I don't fuck it. I don't care anymore. I was like, this is baloney after a fire after four months. Yeah. So I had a mohawk the whole summer while we were closed. Nice. And Seven of our chefs came over to the restaurant a week before we opened while we were testing and getting going. And they were like, they brought their shaver and we all mohawked each nice. other's heads. Um, so there was like seven of us just completely oh, like man, mohawked in the kitchen. It was kind of nuts. That's crazy. So dive into anything you want to talk about. I mean, this is, this is your story, your journey. Reflecting back, what were the things that you were doing right? What were some of the biggest mistakes you think you made uh, that you can kind of get open and honest with and we can learn from your, your mistakes? Yeah, you know, I was uh, it was my first place really everything was on and I had said before you know treat it like it's yours and it will be and I'd always treated everybody's places like it was mine Mm -hmm. but there is a different feeling when you know that the weight of the world is on your shoulders there's it's all you it's it's your you're not just the chef there you're the owner so anything that happens in that restaurant like I said Brian does front I do the back but still to this day I look out for the front he looks out for the back if we see something wrong we're not gonna you know, sweep it on the rug, we're going to address it. And there, anything there that happens is a direct result of of what we do. And I still think this, this that day, if one of our servers does something, you know, out of sorts, one of our cooks does something, I personally, I take it personal because I'm like, well, maybe I'm not training them properly. Yes. Maybe I haven't spent enough time with them or maybe, you know, and I've been told that's a bad thing to do, but I don't know. To me, it's just ingrained in me of, I take it personal, like, I, I need to fix this. I, this can't be. I, I need to take care of this. And, you know, it was something where I took that on. It, it, was, it was a lot of weight on my shoulders. So when we first opened, I was definitely a lot more of a snappy, aggressive chef. Like, I, I got my voice up. I yelled. I, you know, I didn't do anything, like, inappropriate, like <laughs> I had seen in yeah. New York City. <laughs> but I was definitely a really reactionary chef. I, I was snappy. I, I really was. And it took me a little time. Um, one of my chefs, I, I had worked at Oak now and did lunches and dinners for eight straight months. Did not take a single day off for eight straight months. And my sous chef, Vinny, who I'd worked with at the Little Nell, came to be my chef de cuisine. He said to me, he's like, Steve, you know, I think, I think I'm going to go. And I was like, it's only been, what are you talking about? It's been eight months. You haven't been here a year. And he's like, you don't let me be the manager. You're not allowing me to do my job. And I was like, I'm sorry. I said, but he's like, you don't trust me. And 
So I was like, he said, right. you, you don't trust me. Yeah. But yeah. Because I didn't take a day. I refused to take a service off. Yeah. I refused. And, um, he's like, you told me you wanted me to run this restaurant when you're not here, but you don't allow me. You don't allow me to be a manager. So I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. Um, so the next week I said, I'm going to take a day off. I'm going to start taking one day off. So I took a dinner service off and I sat, literally I came and sat across the street. So he didn't see me and I saw him expediting service and I sat there on the bench and watched him and he was such a cool cucumber. He wasn't running around. He wasn't in the kitchen. were working hard, but they weren't frazzled. Yeah. And I saw it. And that to me was a tremendous light bulb of, you know what? I don't have to do this all. I can have other people do this. But I watched him for a good two hours. And it was the most proud moment I've ever probably had in my life where I didn't have to do it. How How did your life change after that? My life changed after that where... I think I got a little lazy. Um, I mean, uh, it changed. I mean, honestly, it changed after that where I did then see I can do other things. Yes. And yes. I can get back to having a maybe this is an opportunity to have that balance. Yeah. The reason why I came yeah. to Colorado. Well, we're talking about work life balance, but what I've found is that that idea of balance extends beyond just work life, but balance with everything in your life. And there's almost, there's, there's, there's an extreme to everything in life. And it's, we have to find that it's that yin and that yang. Right. And, um, you got to find that balance. And, like, like you said, you got, you felt like you got a little lazy, but at the same time, you know, and we, we put a lot of emphasis to them. Nobody's going to work harder for you, for your business and you're going to work harder. So you have to set that example, but you can't be trapped in your business either because exactly. then you can't get out to, to chase new opportunities. So like there's that balance. A lot of people will say like, no, you, like you got to get out of your restaurant. You got to go, you got to make it independent. But again, like it's that balance. Like you got to, you got to have that right amount of FaceTime where you, your, your presence is known in your, cause your, 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 your presence is like, that's your culture, right? That you, it's an extension of who you are and what your values are. Definitely. So if you leave, you take that with you. So there is that little, that given that tank. Do you want to re- reflect on that? Uh, absolutely. You know, and, and also too, with that, you can't, if you do everything yourself, I mean, there's big thing. People need to get paid obviously, but they also need to feel like they're valued at the workplace. If you're doing everything and you're kind of undermining them and, and you're just like, you know what? You didn't cut that right. I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I can not, I can do this in half the amount of yeah. time. I'll do this. Yeah. That's not, that's not good for anybody. Yep. It's not good for my time. It's not good for having them grow. And, yep. and, and I'm just going to be stuck in chains exactly. to the cutting board for the rest yeah. of my life. And I think the last part of this we have to pull out is saying that, you know, that bounce too comes with the, uh, or we talked about extending, showing people that you care, but you got to extend trust before you get trust. And, and Definitely. your, your people didn't feel like you trusted them. So how are they, how are they going to trust you? You know, and they, they, they're going to leave, they're going to go other places. So you got to extend that trust. You got to give people that freedom to do what it is that you hired them to do or else, you know, you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot. Absolutely. But, um, man, I'm loving this conversation. We can go in so many different ways. Um, anything else that you, you want to bring to the, the surface regarding Oak that really will, contributed to knocking it out of the park. I think, you know, honestly, Oak to this day still stays in Boulder, in my opinion, as the best neighborhood restaurant. You know, you could say, you know, Frosca's got all the awards and they do an amazing job. They do. But that's not what we're going for at Oak. Oak, we're going for a place that's a true neighborhood restaurant where people can come and, you know, I have to I have to hold some restraint and be like, you know what, I want to put this dish on the menu at Oak, but it doesn't belong there. It doesn't fit there. It needs to be approachable. It needs to be, it's not tweezery food. It's not fancy, you know. We have a wood-fired grill and a wood-fired oven. Let's highlight yeah. cooking on these items. Mm-hmm. Let's highlight the local stuff coming in and don't, don't tweezer it out too much. That's not what Oak is. And I think that keeping that 
where Oak was. Oak doesn't get like the the awards and the notoriety it used to get um, because it was new at its time of doing that wood fired cooking and and the type of food we were doing. But now, you know, it, it's it's valuable to keep the business going. You have to make a business decision and be like, you know what. Give the people what they want. Yeah. You know? I, I put the, this meatball and, and grits dish on the menu. These meatballs are dynamite, by the way. But um, I didn't take it off the menu because people would riot. And yeah. I'm like, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about what I want on the menu. I get half the menu to play with. And then I think I get half the menu to say, hey, this is what you come in here for. This is what you feel comfortable eating with us. I'm leaving it on the menu. Yeah. I'm going to keep it there. It's, it's so knowing situation. your identity is is what I'm, I'm hearing from you and Huge. not not chasing what the markets are doing and trying to chase what, what trend is going on next, but being consistent and and being something that your guests can be able to anticipate, like knowing what the experience you're going to get because they're the ones that keeping you alive. You're doing it for them. Like they, you're, you became a habit in their life, right? Why not keep that consistent, right? Absolutely. If you want to do something that's not Oak, a little more foofy, then open up another place. Yeah. And that's what I should do then if I want to do that. And that's what you guys did. After five years, 2015, you opened your second location. How did you know you were ready to open your next location? I wasn't. And this is a hard truth. I wasn't, I'm still not. Um, and I was, I was kind of talked into doing it. Um, the developer that would come up here and him and his wife would eat at Oak once a week. They're like, you got to come to Denver. You got to come to Denver. And I said, no, 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 no. Why weren't you ready? Um, I'm still not ready. So you I st- still, what is it that makes you not ready to me? I have something in my brain that doesn't allow me to not be at a place all in or I can either be all in or I can't. So, so right now, for example, at, at Acorn, um, I was working both for, for the first three years of Acorn. I worked there full-time and I worked at Oak full-time. And I had seen that it was affecting Oak and Acorn. I just, oh. I, well, I can't spend time with people like I like to do. I mean, every one of my cooks here at Oak right now, I know them personally. I know what they like to do personally. I, I, I like those relationships with people. And I like to be that teacher like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I, that's what drives me. And I don't get to do it as much, or I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it was tearing me apart. Like I, I was burning out. I was really burning out. Yeah. And I spoke to Brian, my business partner. I was like, listen, I can't do this. I can't do all these restaurants because then we had brighter as well in there. And I'm like, I, I, and he's like, well, you need to be more like, and you can name a thousand chefs that have 20 restaurants. I, I know myself nowadays. I can't do it. I, yeah. I just can't do it. It's not in me. I, yeah. I just, I, it, it, I can't sleep. Well, it it's important that you know um, what it is that, that you're in this business for. And I think, you know, some people are in, some people love this business because they're creatives and they like, to, they like to create restaurants. Some people are in this business because they love to mentor and they love, they love the, the strong connectivity with their guests and their employees that, 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 that bond, that, that, um, just that, that those relationships. Yeah. Right. And it sounds like that's more your type, but it, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's, there's a million different things we can get out of this industry. You need to find out what it is that you want from this industry and then exactly. lean into that. And I think that there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So how, how are you and your, um, your business partners handling this? Because it seems like, like Brian might want to try different things and, and expand it. And he, but you, you want something else. So how do you, how do you manage that? Um, those different, uh, I guess, same, I don't want to say different visions, but different desires for yourself. Sure. So we, um, you know, I, I had an honest talk with them and I was like, listen, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be going crazy like this anymore. I mean, it was every week was literally hundred plus hours yeah. every week. And you, your brain just starts to fry. It really does. Um, especially when you're the owner of the places. And the thing that really dug in and got me was if I wasn't able to get to Oak for two weeks or I wasn't able to get to Acorn for two weeks, um, 
and I noticed things that were wrong, I didn't feel comfortable going in there and disciplining anybody because I felt like a hypocrite. I'm like, I've yeah. been here for two weeks. Yeah. You guys are busting your chops. You're not, you're not doing anything malicious. Going back to what we said earlier where you said you would, you would absorb that. You would say it's my fault because I didn't set you up for success. Exactly. Yeah. I can and see how that would be. It was just tearing me yeah. apart. So we were really fortunate to find a, a chef at, at Acorn. Um, his name's Ian, and he's been running the show now for the last year. I don't have to do much at all with, with Acorn. He really runs it and Brian yeah. watches Acorn and my thing, Oak's my baby. Oak's always going to be my baby no matter what I do. And I told Brian, I want to watch out for Oak. I want Oak to go for, we're going to be coming up next year on 10 years. I want it to go another 10. Yeah. So I really just watch out for Oak right now and I'm back home where I really want to be. So how, let's dive into Ian's story real quick. Was Ian here from the beginning? How did he fall into the, this opportunity? He actually worked, we hadn't met before, but he had worked at the little Nell years and years ago. So we didn't work together, but I had heard great things about him and, um, he did a tasting with us and I thought his food was phenomenal. I mean, honestly, pound for pound, I'm I'm a little biased, but his food is as good as anybody's in Colorado. It's phenomenal. That's amazing. So what about, um, his abilities or desires? Because it sounds like he is stepping into a role that was hoped or meant for you, but you were saying that's, that's not the right role for you. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is you, you don't have to wear all the hats. You can still be an owner and you can still do exactly what you want, but you can create opportunity for other people that are better fit for growth or scaling or creating new concepts or whatever. Um, I don't want to, I don't know exactly what the relationship is there, what the, what the, the, that looks like, but do you, do you pick up what I'm putting down? Sure. Yeah. And you know, I think for him, when he came in, he first thought that he was going to do like a chef de cuisine kind of position, but for me and what kind of food he can do and his talent, I had to let him take full reins. I had to step back and literally Brian, you know, was like, I'm going to watch out I'll work with Ian over at Acorn. You take care of Oak to make sure Oak's yeah. doing. And I had to really, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done is really step back and be like, you know what, Ian, these are the keys to the car. This is your baby. Because I, I saw that the restaurants were both suffering. I, yeah. I saw it and it was eating me up. And I was like, I can't spend time at both of these places. A lot of chefs can do it. I know I can't. I, I know at those calibers, at, at those full on, I say those are full on brain damage restaurants. Yeah. They're full service. Yeah. I, I can't full do on brain that. Damage. <laughs> it, th- I mean, those are, those yeah. are, and no, I couldn't do both. Not to the level that you're trying to do it, you know? Exactly. And, and, um, I mean, when, when you're not, I mean, there, again, it comes to that balance, right? Uh, if, if you're a soul heavy restaurant, um, that soul is an extension of who you are. So if that's, what's important to you, if, if, if that's what you want to do, then I understand the importance of that presence. Um, anything else that you, that you've learned up to this day that, um, you can share with us to save our, my listeners a, a nightmare, uh, anything that hasn't come out of the story yet that you want to drop on us? You know, I would say, um, you know, like, like we just got into at the end, just be honest with yourself, uh, know what you can handle, um, know what you can't handle. And, you know, even though you tell people, Hey, I can't, I don't, I don't, I can't do anymore. I just know, like, it's not about physically. It's about like mentally wearing you down and being like, Hey, you know what? Like know who you are and how you manage your day and how you want to manage your day. And if you can't do it and and you, you you feel like you're going to alter who you are and what things are, you don't do it. Mm. Like don't do it. Or 
just be totally honest and be like, Hey, I, I can't do it. We need to put somebody in that position. Like yeah. be, be brutally honest. Yeah. And chef Steve uh, gave us some great tools today on how to get better acquainted with yourself. The power of journaling, right? The power of tracking your own progress in, in getting in and in, in getting the, your thoughts out, your values out, what's important to you. All these things will help you get that clarity on who you are and what matters most to you. So if you're not journaling I know you're thinking to yourself, who the hell has the time to sit down and write in a journal every night after a 16 hour shift, but it, it's so powerful. You know, you, you found the time it's possible. It's definitely possible. And it's, it's, it's also really cool looking at it. I'm 40 years old now. This was 20 years ago when I kind of started this 21 years ago. Um, and it's so cool of looking back now and just reading it and be like, did I really struggle that much with this? <laughs> yeah. Did I really? Cause now it, it seems it's easy. Yeah. But- and it's amazing how your, per- your perspective changes as you, at, you know, you're, you're maybe you, you believed in one thing back then because you're a narrow minded because you didn't have that experience, but you're exposed to more of the world and it completely changes your perspective. Definitely. So it's a very powerful stuff. So one question I want to start asking all my guests before we go to the speed round is that, you know, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry by making an example of people like you. So how have you transformed? Who are you today? The man you are today versus the man you were back then? You know, um, I think back then I was a guy that I was told to just literally run over people, like go get the position above you and run them over. And, you know, I've got to where I, I am now and I wouldn't, I, I would, I would say that a little bit now is, is, is it was good advice at the time because don't let anybody get in your way. If you want something, go get it. But like now I would say, I would say to anybody, slow down a little bit because these last 20 years have just flew by. They've absolutely flown by. And what I like to do now is kind of, Think about service now as it's just as, as important as it was 20 years ago, but it's not life or death. It, it really isn't. And, you know, it's funny. We're not doctors. And if I send somebody's uh, steak out and it's a little salty, you know what? It bothers me. It really bothers me. But I'm like, man, I'm not doing this on purpose. I'm not here to, I'm not, I don't intentionally want you to have a bad night with us. And food is turned right now into such a critical, crucial thing. And I'm like, what happened to the days of like, people caring for people. What happened for days where you, my intention is to give you a great meal. Am I going to hit hundred percent all the time? I'm not, I'm not. And it used to kill me to know I couldn't. Now I've accepted that I'm going to try to give you hundred percent every time I'm going to, I'm not going to cut any corners for you. I promise, but I might not be able to do that. And you know, I just want you to know that it's okay. And, and out of all of our cooks that we have now, all of our chefs, you're not going to hit hundred percent. You're not. But as long as I see the intention to try, that's all that matters. Beautiful stuff. I've loved this free flowing portion of the conversation. This has been great. One more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be back to bust out a speed round. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions no more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on Prime 
costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system, a value of 5K. Cake makes it easy. Thousands of restaurant operators are using Cake POS and loving it. With its easy, simple to use, and intuitive interface, how could you not? Cake users are achieving peak satisfaction with 24-7 customer support, not to mention lifetime access to Cake University. No wonder customer satisfaction scores are so high. Everything about Cake is simple, including its POS integration with Cake Guest Manager and Google Reservations, which basically allows your guests to book reservations or get on wait lists straight from Google search or Google maps. That's pretty rad. This simple integration alone has increased guest count by as much as 25%. To learn more about how Cake makes it easy, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can save $750 off activation for Cake Point of Sale. But you have to use my links. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it? Factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, I would say really finding something and, and mostly determination. I, I want something. If, if I'm into something, my big thing right now is to get back to pizza, and I just am honing in on it. I, I hone into everything, and I yes. dig into every portion of it. So really just being determined to just dig in. What is your biggest weakness? Technology, for sure. I am brutal <laughs> on computers. Any any. My chefs will tell me, you don't want me doing a schedule. You don't want me doing anything that involves a computer. I can relate to that. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team during the interview process? Just a great attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, a person that has a great attitude can be taught anything. I want, I want a sponge yes. with a great attitude. I don't care where you've worked, what you know, what you don't know. If you have a good attitude, we can do anything with you. What is your biggest challenge today? Biggest challenge is trying to find those people with the, with that attitude. Um, you know, we do find them. We have we have them, but it's not as easy. I don't think as what it was. I hate to be that old guy and be like, well, I was back in there. <laughs> but you know, my, for me, if I didn't do a good job when I was younger, there was four other people waiting to take my yeah. job, and I was I had that fear. I was yeah. like, I need to get my button gear, otherwise I'm gone. Yeah, and you um, you um, did mention you put a little a little. Uh, What's the word? A little English on it. When you said it, uh, is that you gave four months? You you emphasized that you know if those guys today, um, are you finding that people just aren't giving you like the respect and like the heads up that once existed in the industry? If you had if you were leaving like four months, if you had a significant role, is that a standard in the industry? I just think um, it, it's it's beyond the industry. It's in the person because this happens in every field. You know, we, for us to sit here and be like, well, just in the back of the house, just in the front of the house, this is happening. This happens in all fields. I talk to people in all sorts of fields. It's just about how people um, treat each other, how, how people show respect to each other. Not Don't worry about cooking. Worry about how you treat yeah. each other. It's like... Yeah. You know, really, if you don't know where you're going to be in the next four months, you need to really start slowing down and having a plan for your life, right? And if you know where you want to be in four months, guess what? If you tell your boss, you tell the owner of that restaurant where you want to be, and you've busted your ass for that person, odds are they're going to help you get there because they're going to know somebody that will know somebody that will know somebody that will open a door. So be proactive. 
and give them that courtesy of letting them know where you want to go. And we know that this industry is all about getting experience and rounding off your skills. They'll help you get there. Don't be secretive. Be, you know, open up. Make yourself vulnerable. Tell them that you want to go some places. Maybe they'll help you get there, right? Definitely. Um, I just want to put – I made a note to come back to that. And I want to put emphasis because I'm right there with you with it. So excuse me. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Um. I would say definitely, you know, the the lead by example t- type of thing. I mean, if you're a manager, I always say to our managers, be that cool cucumber. These kids are going to rile you up. They're going to be crazy. I want you to manage kind of like like I manage now. Like maybe not when I first opened Oak, but now I've managed in the last five, six years, is be that example of that person. A cool cucumber to me is a person that is in control, a person that knows and shows people look at you and they're like, he knows what he's doing. He's in control. It may be chaos in your mind, but... Keep it, keep it controlled. Keep so the, it controlled. the opposite of what I was when I was setting up these cameras earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, if you're listening to this on audio, we are in the process of releasing video interviews. FYI, spoiler alert. We got 20 recorded up to this point. So keep an eye out. Uh, the next question, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is something that's common within your four walls, but not common with, within the industry. Um, you know, it's been, it's been getting better in the industry now, but really respecting each other in the workplace. Mm -hmm. When we, when we ask people for things, including, you know, me talking to somebody, we say, thank you. No, thank you. Yes, please. Um, excuse me. You know, we, we try to treat people with the respect, um, working with them. And it's just, that's the way my parents raised me. And I want our cooks to talk like that. And our front of the house employees to talk like that to each other. I love it. Uh, What is one book that we must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Oh, um, you know, everyone says setting the table. It's a great book. <laughs> By it, far I the mean, most recommended book. It's, it's a, I mean, everyone's going to say that it's <laughs> a great me, book. Give me um, another one. <laughs> you know, more than, uh, it's not even really a read. It's more of a tool that I use all the time. The original culinary artistry, um, it, it, it to me, it makes me think. Uh, I always say as a chef, I get kind of cooking block, like a writer would get writer's block. I open up that book, and if you haven't seen it before, it goes through ingredients and what, what ingredients pair with them perfectly, and it gets your mind, it, you snap out of a funk, and it gets your mind thinking. Yeah. It'll say bacon. Then next to it, it'll say you know cream, and you're like, okay, and then, it, then it'll push it another step, like garlic. And then you're beginning to create your own dishes. You're not just stealing someone's dishes out of a cookbook. Yeah. It gets you thinking. That was culinary artistry. And another book that's similar to that that a lot of people recommend is reminding me is uh, the, the the Flavor Bible. I don't know oh, if that's on it. Yeah. that's the same authors. Yep. Karen yeah. and... Uh, 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 Andrew. Andrew, yeah. They were past guests on the show. Their latest book, if you haven't picked it up yet, I think it's called... Uh, quiet. You can't reference things, Eric. If you can't think of the names, uh, it will probably come back to me um, before we end up. Like it always comes back. When I stop thinking about it, it will come back into my head. So the next question I have for you is: What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um, I don't think that they spend enough time personally with their employees, um, and and it's something I need to do as well. Um, but you know, I know it's a bad. People say it's a bad management tactic, but I think you should be, and you can be friends with your employees. You can, um, because you're expecting them to come into your house and you're expecting them to care about what you care about. I care that the food is seasoned correctly. I care that it's hot. So then in return, I should care what they care about. If there's something outside of work that's bothering them, I want to know about it. Cause I want to see if I can help you out. Cause you're taking care of me. You're taking care of what I, what's important to me. 
I want to take care of what's important to you. Awesome. What is one piece, this might be a tough one for you and I apologize, but what is one piece of technology you've adopted in the past uh, years that has had a huge impact on operations, communications, efficiency, technology, maybe uh, customer reviews, rave reviews, if it's like a, something that it's, it's customer facing, anything like that you can think of? You know, in the last three months, our chefs, um, we'd always done the schedule on um, on Excel, our chefs actually asked me, can we do schedule fly now? And I was like, I don't, why? I mean, it's so, <laughs> well, it's what a pain in the butt. And once, and as they were setting it up, I'm like, you see, this is a pain in the ass. This is not, I mean, I don't understand, but keep going guys. Yeah. Now it's crazy. Cause now, yeah, you can look at everything yeah. under a microscope. It's, it's, it, it is really yeah. a good tool. And you bring up a really good point. Like whenever you're doing something new at first, it's going to be a pain in the ass. Cause it's strange and strange is hard. Strange is strange. We don't know. It's it's outside of our, our comfort zone, right? But when you push outside that comfort zone and you embrace the strange and get past the strange, before you know it, like two, three weeks into using something, you figured it out and you're like, you're, you're finally starting to feel the efficiencies of these tools. Absolutely. And uh, labor management software is definitely one of the best ones out there. A tool to like implement in your business to, to to make it more efficient in uh, schedule fly is a great tool. So uh, probably one of the, the, it's, it's, it's a, it's a simple tool and it's meant to be simple. There's other tools out there that have crazy bells and whistles, but they're, they're trying to be the, like a, a minimal viable product. And it's, it's a great tool if you like simple technology. Um, all right. The next question, it's, it's a, it's a doozy. It's hmm. the last one. Get ready for it. But if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, uh, three things that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. Three things. What would they be? Three things I could leave behind to people. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, we kind of went over a lot of this yeah. already, but, you know, really treat people with respect, first One. of all. Yep. One. Um you know, treat others like you want to be treated. I Two. mean, that's the, the golden rule, yep. of, I think, of anything. And, um, you know, really, uh, I, I would like people to say, hey, Steve did lead by example. He never told us to do anything that he personally never did. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, we kind of started this conversation, too, saying when you leave this world, like, what are people going to think about you, right? And you know, that's that's the impression, like, like what are people going to say about you? Like what impact are you going to have? Right. And you've made an impact in a lot of lives, my friend. So I just wanted to thank you on behalf of the industry uh, for, for making the impact you've made in so many lives. People have gone on and opened restaurants that, you know, they, they learned so much from you and you, you've literally had a massive impact on so many people. So thank you so much. And, um, how can we connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team or if we want to pick up the conversation, maybe you said something that we wanted to learn more about, maybe that you can help us figure out sure. to get more um, information. So email wise, uh, Steven, S T E V E N at Oak at 14th.com. Um, you can email me any questions you have, anything. If you're like, Oh, you're full of crap, you know, <laughs> e email it to me and I'd love to have a conversation mm -hmm. with you. Um, you could take a look, you know, nowadays everything, it took me a while to get used to social <laughs> media, which I'm still brutal at it, but you can tell, I think in, in people's social media, especially chefs, what kind of food they like and, and how they gravitate towards food. Uh, my, my Instagram is Steve Arino, one, two, three, four. Awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, you can get a feel for, for who the chef is. I think a little bit, you know, of how, you know, yeah. of what they're doing. And I wrap up every chat by having my guests call somebody out. This is actually how you came on my radar. Uh, Sam and Mark called you out. So who's, uh, one or two people you respect and admire in this industry and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Yeah. You know, um, I met this gentleman probably five years ago here. He's here in Boulder. Um, his name's Kyle Mendenhall. 
Um, he had been the chef for the kitchen restaurants for years. Uh, then he had been the executive chef at Arcana, and now he's kind of like the corporate chef for Big Red F restaurants. And uh, love hanging out with him. We actually just hung out last night. Just um, his his approach to how he looks at food and how he really goes about his day and how he kind of it's definitely interesting because it's it's a different take on how I think. Um, not not fully. I mean, we we have a lot in common, but it, it's great to 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 say, hey. I don't do everything great, and I want to see how other people do things. And he has a lot of insight on how he goes about his day, how he goes about his business, how he thinks about food in general um, that, that I like talking to him about because, you know, it, it, it kind of challenges me yeah. to think. Yeah. Kyle, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And, again, I just can't say thank you enough uh, for taking the time to, to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning, Steve. You are unstoppable. And you mentioned <laughs> at, that your cat might jump on the table. Oh, yeah. Um, good timing. Uh, <laughs> she must have knew the conversation was coming to an end. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Cheers. All right. There's another one in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Thank you so much to today's guest mentor for sharing your story, your knowledge, and your guidance. We are all better because of it. And ladies and gentlemen, I need to let you know that Jared and I are back on the road beginning September through November. We're going to be hitting up Denver, Colorado, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, pretty much anywhere and everywhere in between. So if you're out there and you're listening to this and you know of a mentor that needs to be made an example of a, a restaurant tour, doing it right, please put them on my radar. Hit me up, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, at Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Also, we're looking for crash pads. So if you have a spare bedroom or you have an Airbnb that you want to let Jared and I use to uh, you know, live this mission of transforming the industry, we could use your support and thank you in advance. You know how to get in touch with me. Again, that's eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Peace.